Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the education channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom DeSena, from the Department of Communication, Journalism, and Public Relations at Oakland University. My guests today are Cynthia Gannett and John C. Brereton, the editors of Traditions of Eloquence, the Jesuits in Modern Rhetorical Studies from Fordham University Press. Traditions of Eloquence brings together a wide range of scholars from rhetoric, but also philosophy, history, and education to explore the many important ways that the Jesuits have used rhetoric to ground a liberal arts education. The volume recovers an often forgotten history of Jesuit influence in American higher education and serves as a resource for thinking through what a liberal arts education and, indeed, higher education can be as we confront the difficulties of the 21st century. My guest, Cynthia Gannett, is Associate Professor of English at Fairfield University, where she directs the core writing program. She is the author of a variety of articles in composition and has previously directed writing programs, writing centers, and writing across the curriculum programs at the University of New Hampshire and Loyola University in Maryland. John C. Brereton is Professor Emeritus of English at the University of Massachusetts at Boston and the editor of The Origins of Composition Studies in the American College, 1875 to 1925. Cynthia Gannett and John Brereton, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Thank you. So first, let me say how much I admired this work. It was an absolute delight learning from the many prominent scholars you assembled in these pages. But I want to start our talk today by asking you how you came to this project. That is, what motivated your interest in Jesuit higher education? Um, thank you for asking that question. I think it is an interesting one because it's uh, it's not a path that was in any respects uh, clearly marked out for either of us. I discovered Jesuit higher education and finally Jesuit rhetoric and its fascinating histories when I went to Loyola University, uh, a Jesuit college. I knew it was a Jesuit college. I did not know what that meant when I arrived. And I knew vaguely that uh, from my rhetorical understandings that the Jesuits had been very powerful rhetors in earlier times. That's basically all I knew. I was the new uh, head of the Writing Cross Curriculum Writing Center program there, 
And uh, I came across a mission statement, which is important for my work, and it used the phrase eloquentia perfecta in it, just a standalone word with no sort of understanding or translation. And I was um, fascinated by the use of a little old Latin phrase in the middle of a modern college uh, set of aims for education. Uh, I was not alone. Many other people in rhetoric and composition at Jesuit institutions were also starting to ask the question, what does it mean to be in a Jesuit institution and why are we seeing all these funny phrases in our mission statements? Over time, we began to come together and recover the history. We created a whole organization, the Jesuit Rhetoric and Composition Consortium through the AJCU, and we determined to understand what was valuable in this extraordinary history that we were discovering for the present age. And I think that's the larger project that all of this work comes through for me. Um, my, my background is not in Jesuit higher education. I did not <laughs> attend a Jesuit high school or college, um, though I did attend a Catholic uh, college, Manhattan College. Um, our big rivals uh, were Fordham, were the Jesuit school <laughs> uh, in, the, in the other part of the Bronx. Um, but my interest developed through trying to find out about the history of the subject I was teaching, English composition. And I had done a book uh, in the early 1990s called Traditions of Eloquence. Um, traditions, uh, traditions of Inquiry. Of, I'm sorry, Traditions <laughs> of Inquiry. Uh, uh, presenting short biographical portraits of important people who had taught writing in 19th and 20th century American higher education. Um, and I guess I thought that we sort of knew most of where the teaching of composition came from, but there was one question I still had. What, didn't the Jesuits have something to do with composition? Uh, and Cynthia and I, um, uh, developed this mutual interest in finding out more about the history of the Jesuits in composition. This was during the 1990s when both of us were in English departments where theory was a really big deal. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, I guess it was the, the age of theory. And it turned out that there had been, and still is, a rich sure. rhetorical theory in uh, in, in the teaching of writing, the teaching of composition, the teaching of oratory, uh, teaching of communications, and much of that was unknown to my colleagues who were also teaching writing at uh, the City University of New York and Wayne State University, uh, where I had done, some, done much of my teaching, and then at the University of Massachusetts, where, I, uh, where this book was written. So... I guess my approach to the whole subject of the Jesuits was very different from Cynthia's mm -hmm. because she started out in a Jesuit institution, whereas I started out looking at how the Jesuits fit in to the kind of theory that lay behind the teaching of writing. I didn't realize that you had done uh, some time at Wayne State, John. Yes. <laughs> Down, down the road from Oakland. Yeah, just a, another connection. I, I did my uh, my PhD there. Oh, um, nice. So, so 
before we talk specifically about rhetoric, um, I was absolutely fascinated in this work to read about uh, the Jesuits in higher education. Uh, and I said, this is was absolutely a learning experience for me, and I suspect it will be for our listeners. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the Jesuits and higher education? Or really, let's, let's maybe we should start with uh, the Society of Jesus itself. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the religious order? Well, certainly. I, I, and again, these, these were revelations for us as well. <laughs> uh, and they've only come through a, a very long period of time and study. So um, to take on this, the question of the Jesuits and their relationship to, to language generally, I think it's important to note that from the beginning of the order in 1540, the Jesuits identified their work as ministries of the word, which is really, really so prescient. Uh, and that was across all domains of discursive activity, from the most private to the most public. So the educational traditions of the society come out of and are continuous with all of the larger sort of uh, religious uh, kinds of uses of language, as well then as their secular counterparts. The, the Jesuits were really interesting because uh, there were a new order in the Renaissance compared to the older medieval orders like the Benedictines or the Franciscans. And they, uh, rather than being sort of interested in being cloistered and away from the world, they felt that you could bring spirituality and also still live in the world, be people in the world. They were called contemplatives in action. So they believed in all of the spiritual practices of language and prayer an oratory for spiritual purposes, but they also believed that they could act in the world. And because they were born in the Renaissance, the time of the great cultural reawakening through the renovation of the rediscovery of the classics, classical rhetoric and classical literature, they really took Cicero and Quintilian to heart. In fact, they, they even called uh, it sort of casually Cicero, maybe Saint Cicero, <laughs> uh, because they believed that the, of the power of language as deeply transforming at all levels of human activity. So its roots were in Christian humanism. So Jesuit training was always saturated with rhetoric. Of course, they're coming of age during the time of the Reformation, Counter-Reformation. So it's really, really important to teach at certainly your own members and anyone who will possibly listen to you uh, the power of the persuasive arts because the other option was fisticuffs or more extreme violence, right? It was an age of great <laughs> religious violence. And sure. so they really wanted at the Council of Trent and other places to start training their priests, ministers, lay people much more effectively to do the work of the world through words rather than through fighting. So it's, it's a really interesting analogs even until today. Um, Loyola was trained at the University of Paris, which was one of the centers of that important kind of classical renaissance and the colleges and universities that they created over time, the new system, the college was a course of humane letters based on the Greek and Latin classics. Now, again, some other orders thought the Greek and Latin classics were pagan. They didn't want to use them, but the Jesuits felt free to use any of the fruits that came to them from anywhere. And this was a signal to one of the other features that is so important to the Jesuits, which is rhetorical accommodation. Let's find anything anywhere in the world that will do good, and then let's use that for the common good. 
Of course, what they loved about Cicero and Quintilian was this notion of speaking and acting for the public good. And they used that as kind of a central ministry uh, throughout all of their work. So the Jesuit college, as it developed, was focused on active developmental learning, many, many years of classical language training, grammatical study, followed by what they called the humanities, which included poetry and history. And all of that was propedeutic to the final course of study called rhetoric, which was the capstone course. So the full seven years of the lower education before the Master of Arts in Philosophy and Theology was all based on the language arts and rhetoric, which is really extraordinary. They created the largest system of schooling that the world has ever known. By 1773, the year of the suppression, which changes everything for the poor Jesuits, they were operating more than 800 university seminaries and secondary schools around the globe. It's just an extraordinary history. And John O'Malley, who is one of the chief sort of renovators of this of this historical legacy, here's a short quote from him. Um, Rhetoric in the humanistic tradition was not simply a discipline and not simply the culminating discipline, but the discipline that shaped the whole system with its finality and gave it a life-shaping force. So what we might what we might call today the the capstone um, in in general education. Exactly, exactly, and it was two years of study of rhetoric. Yeah, That's it, that would be capstone. that would be a capstone. Yeah, <laughs> and it was coherent, you know. Yes. Um, and it built on all of these other wonderful, all the artes sermonosionales, all the expressive arts. The so, other interesting thing I just wanted to mention was that you had asked before about the definition that the Jesuits gave to rhetoric and eloquence. And I think it's really fascinating that the Jesuits had an extraordinarily capacious notion of rhetoric. So they thought art was rhetorical, architecture, dance, theater, performance, you know, debate, oratory, any public civic discourse, uh, diplomacy, um, treatises, translations, all of it was rhetoric. Which is, again, just fascinating, especially from from our perspective. The scholars in communication didn't get to that point until the 1950s to sort of break out of the rut of uh, the study of public speeches as the as the sort of end all be all of uh, what constitutes rhetoric. Well, one of the uh, the people who bridges the gap between communications and uh, literature is Marshall McLuhan. Sure. Who was a uh, uh, was trained by the Jesuits? Uh, one of his uh, one of his most important students, Walter Ong, um, is somebody that you obviously know through your work in communications. Sure. His his work in in English literature is well known as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the connection between communications and and English English composition um, are, are they're very very strong, and in fact many. Uh, many colleges that offer rhetoric offer it in the communications department rather than in an English department. So let's talk a little bit about you know, describing that system of education that the Jesuits uh, that the Jesuits operated. Uh, Cynthia, you said in the 1700s. Let's talk a little bit about how that migrated to the United States and some of the institutions that are influenced, well, not just influenced, but were, were actually Jesuit institutions. 
Um, the first, first time the Jesuits came to the United States was early on in the Maryland uh, uh, plantation, I guess, the, uh, uh, the Maryland settlement uh, in, in early about 1600s, six, very early in the 1600s. 1600s. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until in the late 18th century, in 1789, that the Jesuits founded an institution of higher education, uh, Georgetown which was the first um, and is by regarded by many as still the premier Jesuit institution of higher education. Um, over the course of the 19th century and into the 20th century, the Jesuits grew from that one institution, Georgetown, to 27 or 28, depending upon how you count them, uh, institutions of higher education. And many uh, other seminaries, and then seminaries and centers, that sort of And, of stuff. course, yeah. the high schools as well. Um, so yeah. one could follow the, the growth of the Jesuit colleges and mark that on a map or on a chart with the immigration patterns from Ireland, from Italy, from Germany, that is Catholics arriving in America mm-hmm. and needing higher education. Yes. And in America, as opposed to Europe, the Jesuits taught immigrants. Mm-hmm. In fact, many of the Jesuits themselves were immigrants. Well, all of them at the beginning. Uh, well, certainly all of them were, were at the beginning. Yeah. Um, we have a quote in our book from a, um, a student uh, in one of the uh, Indian reservations in the West uh, who was telling his Italian Jesuit uh, teacher that his accent, was, the Indian's own accent, was much better than his accent was. <laughs> um, the and it, it wasn't until sometime in the early 19th century that most of the Jesuits who taught in Jesuit higher education were American-born. Mm-hmm. So the American Jesuit colleges began in with Georgetown, but spread west, yeah. west, mm-hmm. um, California. And they were, they were interesting, different flavors of Jesuit institutions. Yeah. Uh, the Italians founded colleges in California uh, and in Washington, uh, state of Washington, uh, Gonzaga, uh, Seattle mm-hmm. University, uh, and then the University of San Francisco, and Loyola uh, in, in Los Angeles. The Belgians founded some in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, the French founded a few as well. In, in the Northeast and New England. Most Europeans don't realize that there are 28 or 27 no. uh, Jesuit institutions. I, mean, I say 27 or 28 because... Uh, one was recently decommissioned. One was recently decommissioned. Wheeling, uh, it still exists, oh. but it, it is no longer considered a Jesuit institution of higher education. In part because they got rid of some of the fundamental liberal arts courses that the Jesuits felt were essential to a Jesuit core, uh, and it has become more of a technical institute. So it's very interesting. Even in the current day, there there are ways in which the Jesuits would like to keep a certain kind of identity. Um, I just wanted to add uh, that the that as you as it's probably clear, although we don't really think about this a lot, is that when uh, the large Catholic migrations became came to the, the U.S., 
they were met with an incredibly hostile Protestant crowd. Oh, sure. And the very earliest Jesuit educational experiments in Maryland were actually shut down forcibly by Protestants. So there had been a very early effort in the 1600s to create Jesuit education in America, but they were simply um, not allowed to thrive. Uh, so, and even as they came aboard, um, there was a great deal of hostility to Catholic education generally. And to Catholics. And, and to Catholics generally, and to the Jesuits. So uh, we think of the Jesuits in terms of uh, their extraordinarily rich history in Europe and abroad as being the kind of the schoolmasters of Europe and the tutors to kings and the confessors elites, to yeah. kings and the elites and the power brokers. It's so interesting that in the U.S. they were here on a very different kind of service mission, and they often served the, the poor and the marginalized Catholics, many of whom would not have been allowed to have a Catholic education that went beyond elementary school. Um, and then additionally, I think um, that there was concern that to the extent that Catholic um, students entered higher education in Protestant institutions, they would be forced to give up their Catholic beliefs. So there was a need to create a system in America for Catholics, and the Jesuits by far created the largest system in America as well. It's also interesting that what they brought were their, their European models, and so you still had a seven-year kind of structure rather than high school and college, which we have here in America. And it was uh, based a lot on language training. It didn't have a lot of other branches. All of the other areas of learning were incorporated into a continuous integrated curriculum. And this is one of those interesting points where they got into increasing trouble with accrediting agencies as they develop over time in the late 19th and early 20th century, because they didn't have X many hours of you know, scientific training or this kind of credit for mathematics or this kind of credit. They certainly had um, all of the branches covered um, and they did continue to develop with all of the new kinds of scientific and technical advances in knowledge. Uh, but they didn't want to um, submit to the German higher education model, which was all about research and very, very hyper-specialized fields and teachers teaching only in one specific area. They wanted a, a, a broad, integrated, intellectual framework that would produce active citizens capable of actually discovering and finding information in any place that would be useful to do work in the world. I think that's a huge uh, kind of difference. And I think it's interesting that in the modern age, now that we have such um, discrete, compartmentalized, hierarchized, higher educational systems, we keep now having to find ways to put them back together, to put them back in conversation. So then we create collaborative interdisciplinary centers, for example, or we create certain kinds of curricular structures to make students have some kind of experience where they can talk to each other. Um, and for all of its, you know, um, flaws, for example, I don't know that everyone needed three years of Greek, uh, <laughs> the, the Jesuit educational system still created, I think, or worked to create citizens who carried broad and deep liberal arts understandings to all of their other projects, which is something that I really value being in the humanities. So you mentioned something. I want to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, um, 
what happens with the Jesuits in the United States and as you refer to the credit hour system and a few other things. But a little while ago, you mentioned something um, that I think uh, we should probably circle back to, which is the suppression of yes. the Jesuits. Um, mm-hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that is? Because it, it sounds very similar to uh, some of the thing, the other things that you're talking about, but it's really quite different from the uh, conflict with the Protestant majority in the United States. Ah, yes, uh, yeah. yes. Well, that is interesting. Um, in 1773, uh, the Jesuits, as an order, were entirely suppressed by the Pope. Uh, they were suppressed by the Pope not because he wanted to, but because various warring ruling houses of Europe thought that the Jesuits were getting too powerful and they were developing their own sense of nation states and they were concerned that the Jesuits were too obligated to Rome rather than to the specific nation state. And they also wanted to control all of their educational systems themselves Another important factor in the suppression was that other Catholic orders were very jealous of the Jesuits because they were so eminently successful in their educational project. So there were jealousies across Catholic orders, but it came to a head, actually, with one of the things that the Jesuits, I still think, did right, which was that in South America, there were a series of settlements of, um, of Christianized Indios, and um, the royal court of Spain and Portugal, mm-hmm. Pombal, wanted to take the labor of these <coughs> Indi- Christian Indian groups and force them to work in the silver mines. They wanted to basically, and these, they were called reductions, they wanted to harness these people essentially as slaves to the crown, Hmm. And the Jesuits said, these are Christians. <laughs> uh, we don't want, we, and we, they were in charge of these reductions. We, we feel that it is wrong. It is unethical to submit, submit these people to this kind of enslavement. And that gave the, 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 the royal crowns of uh, the parts of the Hispanic empire even more ammunition to get rid of the Jesuits because they wanted the goods uh, the silver and gold from Latin America. So they were suppressed until 1814 uh, when they were finally restored because the Catholics really needed school systems and the Jesuits sure. had uh, run these extraordinary school systems everywhere. Their schools had been dismantled. They had been forced in all into very, very, very horrific conditions all around the world. The during, their libraries were destroyed, sold off, their observatories taken, everything. Uh, when they were uh, reinstated, there was only one a living Jesuit in France, for wow. example. And there were only two or three, a few people in the U.S. Uh, they couldn't be Jesuits during the period of suppression, so they called themselves something like the Friends of the Ex-Society. Uh, they had been ex-Jesuits. Uh, and when the Jesuits were restored, they were then... Um, uh, allowed to start to form a Jesuit order again or uh, a, a Jesuit presence in the United States. It's it's important to note that the Jesuits were, that America was mission country. 
for the Jesuits sure, until the early 20th century. So we were like Ethiopia or Japan. <laughs> uh, so they were, they sent people over to help us start our schools and colleges. And it's um, interesting. In some ways, we've you know uh, we've almost come back to that point for um, for Catholics in the United States. Yes, yes, it's it's it it is a fascinating quandary that we are in, and I do think that certainly, as John and I were growing up, he grew up Catholic. I did not, but I don't think either of us really had the sense of the powerful kind of enmities and hostilities and actual perpetrated violence. Uh, across religious orders that had been so recently part of the United States history and yet again can sort of surface at any time. And that's been very instructive for us to to try to learn more about. So I, I don't know that this was something that you wrote about, and forgive me if, uh, if, if you're not able to tell the story, but let's talk a little bit about the eclipse of Jesuit higher education in the U.S. and especially uh, interesting here is the conflict with uh, Harvard and uh, in the figure of Charles Eliot. We have written about that, and when one of our colleagues uh, did publish the article in the in the uh, three C's, our college English. Yeah, we do know that story, and John, you'll tell it. Um, <laughs> yes, this is a, this is a fascinating story. Um, Charles Eliot considered himself a reformer and he was in a position of quite a lot of power and in the 1890s he decided that graduates of the local Jesuit college Boston College could not qualify to enter Harvard Law School because they had such a weird education <laughs> um he said it was the the uh, he didn't use the word madrasa, but it was like the 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 madrasas, uh, all this concentration on Latin and Greek. Now, Eliot was a chemist, but had tr been trained with four years of Latin in his prep school and four years of yeah. Latin at Harvard and and Greek as well. The he, the Jesuits were giving pretty much the same education that Eliot had, but it was thirty years earlier earlier that he had his education and he had instituted the German model of higher education at Harvard. That is departments, electives, electives, um, and research. The Boston college had not done that, had retained the old Jesuit curriculum from the Ratio Studiorum from the with 16th century, with, with certainly with some adjustments. Um, the Jesuits made a distinction between what they called class men and branch men. And the, hmm. the Jesuits who were, were class men stuck with the students, and they taught lots and lots of different things across to the class, uh, across the whole first-year class, second-year class, third-year class. The branch men started to specialize. In subject areas. Now, Jesuits rarely received PhDs at that time, whereas Eliot wanted his faculty to get PhDs. Uh, he had certain, there were certain exceptions. Um, George Lyman Kittredge, uh, his famous Shakespeare scholar at Harvard, didn't get a PhD. He said, who would examine me? <laughs> um, but most Jesuits 
had more training than most Americans who got PhDs, but they had them in things like theology or homiletics, homiletics, <laughs> uh, sacred sure. scripture, um, and Eliot regarded that as curious and and out of date. So he and said, obviously too Catholic, obviously too Catholic. No, none of no, no graduate of of Boston College would be. Uh, would be considered to have the right kinds of credentials to be admitted to Harvard Law School. And that well, caused a huge brouhaha. Uh, Brosnahan, the, uh, yeah. uh, the Jesuit who ran Boston College, was outraged at this. Now, Boston College was a streetcar school back then. Um, it was for the working class uh, Irish kids in South Boston. Um, it it, what we might think today of the commuter school. A, a commuter school, right. That only changed in the 1950s and 60s. Um, Boston College was, when, when I was growing up, was still a commuter school. Um, of course, Harvard was, was still had a, its commuter school aspects to it as well back in the, in the 50s and 60s. Uh, but Boston College was considerably lower down in the ranks of, uh, of prestige than Harvard. Um, Brosnahan was outraged that his students, some of his best students, were being turned down by Harvard Law School and wrote, and uh, uh, Elliot had written in The Atlantic saying that this is why he was doing this, and Brosnahan wrote back to The Atlantic. The Atlantic Monthly by then, uh, based on Arlington Street in Boston, um, was a pillar of the New England yeah, Protestant elite, elite, elite. Right, right. and it, it refused to print Brosnahan's rebuttal to uh, right to to um, Elliot. the to Elliot's uh, complaint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This but, this changed. Um, Harvard gradually accepted students from Boston College. Um, you know, Harvard Law School needed students it, it, back sure, in those days. It, it wasn't that. There was an enormous uh, uh, crowd outside the gates of Harvard Law School trying to get in, as, as there may be now. Harvard needed undergraduates and it needed graduate students in its law school. Mm -hmm. um, and so gradually Harvard uh, admitted more students from uh, Boston College and from, from other and Ford, Jesuit Ford and schools, other schools, from Fordham and, and but other, the, other but schools. But those schools were also... And probably, and probably without the statements in the Atlantic certifying that fact. Exactly, uh, exactly, exactly. Exactly. So that the other... But the, but the Jesuit schools did suffer from this. And Catholic parents who were upwardly mobile also, at this point, given Harvard's view and some of these other critiques that were, you know, redolent of that period of time... Uh, also pushed Jesuit schools to look much more like, quote, American schools. And accrediting um, agencies also then forced them, if they were going to be accredited, i.e. that they would get students who could be certified, forced them to make lots of curricular changes, which is where a lot of this history was lost. Yeah. Uh, Boston College did gradually change its curriculum. Yes. And, and, um, but, but just as an aside, I... I mentioned the the forthcoming article in College English about five years ago to a friend at Boston College. Um, and he had on his desk... On his desk. 
the article that Brosnahan oh, really? had, had submitted to the Atlantic and was turned down, and so it was printed as a pamphlet. And there it was uh, right on his desk. And all the undergraduates I know at Holy Cross and Boston College had to read both. Oh, the Atlantic piece and, and the rebuttal. Yes, yes, yes. Because the Jesuits believed in debate and argumentation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. By the way, at, at this time, there were really big deal, they really had a big deal about oratory. Mm-hmm. Um, and true. debate was a very important intercollegiate kind of sport right. in, in, in Boston. And Boston College kept beating Harvard. Harvard. <laughs> of course. Harvard may have had better football teams. It, it was yeah. the number one football team in the country for a while. Uh, but the Boston College students would do ex- did extremely well against Harvard. Uh, th- this was a, a different kind of oratory than now takes place. Mm-hmm. Uh, now it's extraordinarily stylized and, uh, and very far removed from the, the, the genuine kind of debate that, that took place in the late 19th century, early yes, 20th century. Yes. But places like Symphony Hall in Boston would be filled with parents and, and, and the whole, uh, an the whole audience yeah. interested in the debate between, between Harvard, Harvard and, and Boston, Boston College. College. That's right. And they, they managed to get Elliot, or they roped him into to be one of the judges of the debate. Uh, so things Interesting. were yeah. settled uh, rather amicably. Uh, this was much more um, of a class issue than I think as a, uh, than a religious issue. Uh, Eliot was a very religious man, though he was Unitarian, and, and because of, he, he, of his Unitarian beliefs, he looked, to a Catholic at least, like he wasn't that religious. Um, but, but indeed, if you read lots and lots of things by Eliot, uh, he, he was extremely religious. Uh, it's not religion versus, uh, or not Protestantism versus Catholicism uh, so much as a class issue. Yeah, but the so, distinctive features. I'm sorry. Did you want to ask something? Yeah, I, I'm. I, I want to talk a little bit about that. What you said about um, the debate competitions, and, and of yeah. course, debate is still very much uh, yeah. practiced in in the United States. Sure. Um, there are still debate circuits, and, and it's interesting. You know, being being in communication studies and and being a rhetorician in communication studies, one of the things that has always set me apart is that I don't come from that debate tradition. Uh, almost, almost everyone that I know of in, who is a rhetorician in communication has some kind of a debate background, and, and I just don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the reasons is, and why it intrigues me, what you just said, John, is, is, is how stylized those competitions often seem to me. So when you say that, the, that what was happening uh, with Boston College and Harvard at, at this period, didn't have that same stylization. Can you talk a little bit about what you mean by that? Well, it was much more like the Oxford Union debates that that oh, okay. still exist uh, in England, and I, I haven't been keeping up with the, uh, the the latest on them. But they have not become as stylized as the American debate cir- circuits, as you put it, uh, have become. Right. And it seems that, you know, it's not that there weren't specific kinds of genre conventions. It sure. Was that the, it seems to me that the teaching uh, of all of the language resources for all purposes 
and the teaching of audience and rhetorical accommodation as central filters in the in the whole education suited the Jesuit students in these moments because they weren't following just a singular kind of, you know, logical apparatus. They could use pathos and ethos and logos uh, in in terms of, you know, rhetorical flourish or, you know, the the importance of using all of the resources in a a spontaneous way that was superbly well-trained across literally endless iterations of practice. And they were also taught, remember, that, that rhetoric included performance of all kinds, right? Sure. Um, and, it, and really included a, sort of the natural evolution of all for, uh, sort of forms of gesture and the nature of voice. And many of the thousands of Jesuit treatises that have been uh, created around the world, we're still trying to begin to inventory um, even the smallest number. They will really speak to how you communicate the whole person. And one of the things that you had mentioned is the term you know, um, the, the sort of the notion of the whole person um, and care of the whole person. And the speaker needs to be a whole person, not just a, not just a voice. And the, the speaker needs to understand the audience, the sort of notion of men and women for others, the whole sense of the audience rather than taking a demographic feature and speaking to that. And I, sure. I want to share this tiny bit. This is this goes back to Timothy Brosnahan, the guy who took on Elliot. Um, and in the mission mm-hmm. statement at Boston College that was used between 1899 and all the way to 1951, I think part of his yeah. rebuttal to He's Elliot. printed in the Boston College catalog. Yes, and used in many, many mm-hmm. other Jesuit catalogs across across the country is this notion of educating a whole person, not just a smart person or a person learned in one area. So it's the opening sentences, education is understood by the fathers of the society in its completest sense as the full and harmonious development of all those faculties that are distinctive of man. It is not therefore a mere instruction or or the communication of knowledge. So it it is the learning as an instrument of culture and education, not its end. The end is culture, mental, and moral development. And I think that that was the reason that that basic aim was was absolutely in contradistinction to the way U.S. higher education was going, which was much more about disciplinary knowledge as being the front and center of all things in the college. And, and there's a whole paragraph. I won't read it to you, but I will send it to you if you're interested or send it out. Oh, and sure. It is a, uh, a defense of why language stays at the center of a Jesuit education. And he says there's all these important things, mathematics, natural science, all these other things are very important. But he says, basically, language, language are the manifestations of spirit to spirit and their study and their acquirement of the truth of the whole mind is brought into the widest and subtlest play. So he basically says Language is the thing that separates us from everything else, and the uses of language to think are at the center of a higher education. It's very beautiful in a way. It, it just your reading of it is, um, and, and I want. I, I'm struck. It's this is an, an interesting week um, here in Rochester. We are just a few miles away from Oxford, Michigan, where I'm sure you have heard uh, there was another of this country's um, intermittent but interminable uh, school shootings. Oh, yeah. And 
in in the wake of all of these things, there's a, a you know an almost patented response that we seem to go through that you know we, we send thoughts and prayers and end up not doing anything, and, and I'm but the one exception to that was the Parkland shooting in Florida, mm-hmm. where the students mobilized to try to do <laughs> something to end this epidemic of violence that is taking place in our schools. Right. And one of the reasons that I think that has been attributed is that they had all been in debate programs. Uh, yeah. part, of, part of the Florida education was that, and they had all just come out of a season where gun control was their debate topic. And and so they knew the they knew the arguments in sort of a you know maybe mm-hmm. not exactly the way the Jesuits would have imagined but they knew the arguments on both sides mm-hmm. and so were able to enter into the conversation as fully formed citizens mm-hmm. um, and, and people who had a voice and could think through the issues and and importantly wouldn't be silenced. Yes. Anyway, it's it's a I, I think. Again, the uh, the notion of the cura personalis is, is one of the, the issues that I wanted to, to touch on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, let's let's move on. And again, you, I think we've been sort of talking about this all all along, about the centrality of rhetoric for higher education uh, among the Jesuits. Um, let's talk a little bit about a few of the the key terms you've already mentioned: eloquentia perfecta, and and of course now we've discussed uh, the cura personalis. Let's talk a little bit about discernment. Yes, that that would be lovely. Uh, I think one of the one of the reasons that I was drawn to an institution like Loyola is that there seemed to be an opportunity to build in a relationship to some broad and uh, non-exclusive version of, uh, you know, the sacred aspects of daily living uh, as, as well as others uh, as a part of intellectual formation um, so that we, we don't get formed. Again, this brings, you know, moral, intellectual and cultural development together. And there seemed to be a space to do that. Uh, at Loyola when I applied to go there. And one of the terms that, of course, is so important there is is reflection and discernment. And accompanying that, of course, is the long-term legacy of the spiritual exercises, which just are a series of kind of simple reflective discursive um, questions and examinations that, that are, in fact, used all over and even in non-Catholic settings um, as a way of sort of anchoring ourselves regularly and asking ourselves regularly to, uh, and I, for me, it boils down to learning how to listen. So hmm. for me, discernment is a, is a project that I see that is actually called on in some Jesuit schools, maybe more than others or in some situations, but as, um, as a, a notion uh, that certain kinds of small, simple regular meditative practices um, can inform the way we begin to view all of our daily interactions because we can step back and ask simple things like, what are we thankful for? How is our own behavior 
you know, uh, manifested during the day? What are the things that we felt not just not didn't go well or badly, but what do we take responsibility for and how do we need to learn to listen more fully to others all the time? Um, we're, we're in a culture of speaking and not in a culture of listening or learning often. Uh, I think the constant uh, um, immersion and saturation of media coming at us uh, all the time means that we sort of just figure out how to just speak back to it as quickly as we can. Uh, and it, the rapidity of the way in which, you know, uh, information comes at us often doesn't seem to afford the opportunities for any quiet moments, uh, forget regular opportunities for discernment. But in, in our classes, we are, we are quite, um, we were, it, it was open for us to use any of the tools of discernment to have people sort of think more, we might think of it as critical thinking or even, you know, meta knowledge, thinking about how we're learning, thinking about how do we take care of each other as a classroom community as we build knowledge together, there are so many forms of, of, of discernment that are both intellectual, but also moral, personal, and social. And I do think that wherever education can permit and in fact encourage the regular practice of discernment, uh, maybe we would, we would be less likely to be mad first at okay. every occasion. <laughs> it, and it's, Listening to you, it it struck me as well that the the idea of discernment certainly has some resonance with the idea of critical thinking. Yeah, and and maybe it and and maybe it's just me, but for a variety of reasons, I think I prefer discernment to mm-hmm. critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Uh, f- probably for some of the reasons that you just said, but also that critical thinking has a it, it it's inflected differently. Yes. Yes, yes. Well, and the word critical often just means criticism. Yes. So in finding fault. Finding, finding fault. fault. Yeah, like right, critical right, right. race theory. Yeah. I don't yeah, right, even even with that, as opposed to critical like important. Right, right. <laughs> yes. So uh, yeah, there you go. I hope that's so, helpful. Oh, absolutely. So, so let's uh, an, another key term for um, the Jesuit rhetorical tradition is the idea of casuistry. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> um, this is this is one that it, that in some ways gets them into a little bit of trouble. Uh, but let's uh, l- let me ask you to to define that and talk about it a little. Well, it, it certainly got them into trouble with Pascal. Um, <laughs> Pascal's one of my favorite writers, and um, I, I should define casuistry, I think, the, for, for, for your listeners who perhaps aren't as familiar with the term as, as many are. Um, ca- the word casus case is, is involved in this. You sure. have to think of the implications of a decision you make in terms of what's in front of you. You're not applying some sort of template from outside, but you're looking at the actual details of the case, uh, of the person who's involved, of the implications that your decision will make on the person. Or the moment. The moment. And it's nuanced. Yes. Rather than absolute. So some thinkers would insist that you take a... 
uh, a, a clear yes or no approach to any moral issue. And the, the Jesuits were Aristotelians rather than Platonists in this. But Plato was much more in favor of yes, no decisions. Whereas Aristotle, um, the, the Jesuits recognized, was aware of the fact that we can't ab absolutely prove everything to our satisfaction. Remember, Plato had what we call the logical proofs, whereas mm -hmm. Aristotle had the enthymeme. That is, yeah. enthymeme means, yes, it tends to be in this direction. Um, it, it can't be absolutely logically proven. And, and in our lives, that's, that's what operates. It's, it's messy. It's, it's a messy human decision. And casuistry involves messy human relations. Mm -hmm. Now, Pascal... <laughs> didn't like that. Didn't like that. But lots of people don't like that. Yeah, Indeed. No, absolutists, right. Absolutists. Mm -hmm. um, there's a wonderful book by Stephen Toulmin and Albert Johnson mm -hmm. called The Abuses of Casuistry. Yes, it's wonderful. Mm -hmm. uh, Toulmin is a, is a great uh, philosopher of logic. Johnson was a medical ethicist who had been a Jesuit. Mm -hmm. um, we've talked to many Jesuits, and Jesu the Jesuits did not know that Johnson had been a Jesuit. Right. And Johnson had imbibed casuistry mm -hmm. from his Jesuit training. And he was on uh, the pre president's panel to decide about issues of life and death right. um, mm -hmm. and end-of-life decisions. And he applied casuistry. Yeah. He would, he would say, you can't just say yes or no in, um, These complex situations, in a complex right. situation. You need to talk to the person themselves. You need to talk oh. to the person's family. Yeah. You need to make a decision in context. Mm -hmm. Now, Pascal would have said, uh, if, if I can bring if him, were, drag him into the, right. uh, uh, it's either right or wrong. You're going to make a decision, and it's it's correct or it's incorrect. It's moral or immoral. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Johnson or Toulmin or a Jesuit would say it depends upon the circumstances. Now, of course, this has gotten Pope Francis into some difficulty lately. Yes, it has. Over mm -hmm. uh, gay things like gay marriage, things like abortion. He is against gay marriage. He is against abortion, but he's not strong enough for the likes of uh, some people, some evangelicals and some of the equivalents of Pascal nowadays mm -hmm. want him to be much firmer and much stronger. He doesn't look as strong because of his Jesuit training, I would claim. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know what, what uh, the seminary in, in Argentina taught him about casuistry, <laughs> uh, but there is a long tradition oh, of, of, of thoughtful discernment about moral issues. Right. And in fact, the this notion, we would tie casuistry back to this sort of the, the origins of the Constitution. I mean, the spiritual exercises, for example, allow for a whole variety of different kinds of points of view, which is beyond the usual forms of scholastic meditative practice. But also, um, if you there's a book, a wonderful book on the constitutions of the Jesuits themselves, 
uh, that argues uh, that from the very beginning, they built in kind of a rhetorical accommodation process to every aspect of, of, of Jesuit life. And Steve Schlosser has written a wonderful essay on rhetorical accommodation. And in our book, um, uh, Robert Merricks has written about the ways in which uh, certain notions of um, kind of plausibility rather than absolute certainty, probabilism, probabilism, probabilism come into the Jesuits at the very beginning. So that is why O'Malley can say things like, basically, the Jesuits are a rhetorical culture at every level. Sure. And that has to do with always making decisions for that are complex and messy and human, uh, drawing basic principles, you know, using basic principles, but allowing for an array of possible responses. Well, as I said, this has this is a, a fascinating uh, text. It's a, it's a wonderful book, I think, for not just scholars of rhetoric and, and those areas that touch on rhetoric, but really, I think, uh, anyone interested in the direction that higher education sh- can take or should take moving forward into the 21st century, I think, would do well to visit this volume. Um, that said, uh, let me ask, is, is what's next for the two of you? So we've, we've just finished a piece that's not out yet. Uh, we gave a multi-day uh, workshop on Jesuit rhetoric at a rhetoric and religion conference in Tennessee a couple years ago. And we've been writing about the sort of modern implications of Jesuit rhetoric for today's higher education. Um, and uh, in that, for example, we take key figures like um, Corbett and John Bean, who are very well known, um, and we follow their kind of Jesuit connections. Uh, again, exposing these really fascinating hidden histories. Um, we were recently on a panel talking about truth and reconciliation huh. through the conversations, uh, tra- talking about some of these very difficult matters. And asking the question, how do the tools of eloquence perfect us, help us start to think, think about truth and reconciliation? So that's another project we're very interested in. Uh, John and I both would like to write much more about the Jesuits and, you know, more complex notions of moral education. Yeah. Um, the touchstone for the Jesuits, Cicero is certainly one of them, uh, but the, the other... Uh, is um, the, the bonus puer peritus de, de, de Kendi, de Kendi uh, yeah. a, a good, good man, man speaking well. Speaking well. And well. The question is the bonus. How do you get to the good? How do you get to <laughs> the good man? Mm-hmm. Bringing people uh, in, into contact with good, um, good morals. And American higher education seems to have uh, fallen flat on, on that. You know, it used to be that in the, in the 19th century, you would learn about morality, this is Jesuit schools and non-Jesuit schools, about through literature. Literature used to teach sure. you morals. Uh, and, and, of course, the, the Jesuits had the, the great French classical dramas, which actually dramatized yes. the the moral dilemmas that people faced in complex and in complex uh, situations and there they were on the stage they're still on the stage in the comedy francaise 
in, uh, in Paris, uh, we think that the Jesuits have never come to terms with giving up the classical literature because sure. the classics took up a quarter of the curriculum or, or maybe a fifth of the curriculum. And what, what, what filled that curriculum? Well, theology did and philosophy did. Um, but if you look at the theology curriculum of many Jesuit schools, it's not just, Je- not just Jesuit schools, Catholic schools, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a mishmash because no one has ever figured out how to intellectually teach morality. It's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? Uh, How do you teach people to be good? What they used to call in the 19th century, character formation. Now the Jesuits did that in their high schools and um, in some of their colleges with sodalities, with uh, dramas that were put on by, by, by class members. Uh, written by many, written by Jesuits, uh, by prayer, by vigils, uh, what we, what they call the extracurriculum, and mm-hmm. that has has gone by the wayside nowadays, um, and it's no longer central to the educational enterprise. And I, I'm I'm interested in writing about that and um, exploring what can be done to restore some of that, if it's at all possible. Well, that sounds fascinating, and I'll look forward to reading it once it comes out. (laughs) Uh, Cynthia Gannett and John C. Burton, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. Thanks. Had a lovely conversation. Um, Once again, my guests today are the editors of Traditions of Eloquence, the Jesuits and Modern Rhetorical Studies from Fordham University Press. My name is Tom DeSena, and you're listening to the Education Channel of the New Books Network.